tobacco genetics and breeding. Um, objectives include tobacco cultivar development, generation of new tobacco, uh, knowledge on the genetic control of traits of economic and biological interest. And they use diverse method methods in their program, uh, ranging from conventional selection, application of DNA markers, and plant transformation. And Dr. Levy Lewis has uh, 40 publications and one book chapter. And today he is here to talk to us about use of diverse breeding methods in tobacco breeding program. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Lewis. Thank you very much. All right. So thank you very much, Amrit. Um, congratulations to the graduate students for organizing this. I've seen this done at North Carolina State University, and I, I see how much coordination and effort is involved. So I congratulate you on, on putting a, a good symposium together. And uh, like Amrit said, um, I got my undergraduate degree here. And um, of the things I value a lot in my life, one of the things I value most is my education. And much of that was received here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So it's fun for me to uh, come back here and talk about some of the things that I've been working on at NC State University in the last 10 years. Whenever I come back here, it doesn't take long for me to uh, remember how windy it is in this state. Um, but um, so. In 1996, uh, I went to NC State University, not to get away from the wind, but really to go live in a different part of the United States. Ended up doing a, a master's degree in, in tobacco at NC State University. At that time, I certainly had zero ambition and zero expectation that I would ever work in a tobacco research program. But over time, that opportunity presented itself to me. And tobacco is obviously a very controversial commodity, very political. There's a lot of money involved. So that's the commodity. But the plant, the tobacco plant, is actually very fun to work with. I can do some fantastic things with the tobacco plant. And so I thought if I did things in the right way, we could carry out a research program and do some things that would be interesting to myself, um, to people in my program, to uh, graduate students, maybe do some things that might be of interest to plant breeding in general, and also maybe have some impact on agriculture in the state of North Carolina. see here. So there's a lot of neat things. You know, the tobacco in, in Nicotiana, Nicotiana tobacco comes from the genus Nicotiana. And the genus Nicotiana has been useful uh, to plant breeding in general to uh, generate uh, uh, new information. The Nicotiana genus itself is comprised of over 70 species, a good mixture of diploids and polyploids. And over time, Nicotiana species were useful to uh, uh, learn about the mechanisms of polypoidization and the consequences thereof. Um, some of the, well, the very first interspecific hybridization in plants was conducted in Nicotiana. And some of the very first examples of transferring genes from wild relatives to a cultivated species were done uh, using Nicotiana. Also, Nicotiana tobacco was a model system to study uh, tissue culture around the 1960s, so can we regenerate intact plants from single cells of plants? And consequently, um, tobacco was the first plant to ever be genetically engineered. Uh, there's a picture of one of the first genetically engineered traits in crop plants. There's some virus resistance there. 
And, uh, you know, for graduate student research projects at NC State University, of all the crops that we work with, tobacco is the only crop that we work with where a graduate student can come in, create a transgenic plant, evaluate it in the field for some trait within the confines of a graduate degree. So we try to take advantage of some of the features of tobacco uh, for our uh, research uh, projects. And also, among other things, tobacco was useful for developing and studying double haploid uh, breeding methodologies, which are shown there on the bottom. There's also a lot of interesting chemistry in Nicotiana. There's interesting chemistry that affects how the plant relates to the environment, particularly plant pests and plant pathogens. And obviously, there's interesting chemistry as it relates to humans. Obviously, nicotine is responsible for the major pharmacological effect in users of tobacco products, and it's, uh, it, it's uh, important to addiction in, in the world. And it's a result, or it's a, and the result of that is a multi-billion-dollar industry, which is very controversial. So that's also interesting to look at from a university perspective. You know where the first time I saw a tobacco plant was? It was actually at the University of Nebraska in 1996. I was working in Roy French's lab. Uh, with a graduate student of Steve Benzinger's. That's the first time I ever saw a tobacco plant. The second time I saw a tobacco plant, the first time ever in the field, was in Kentucky when I was driving from Nebraska to North Carolina State University. Now, there are several main tobacco types grown around the world. And I'm going to mention the two most important types in the United States. The second most important type in the United States is burley tobacco, which is grown primarily in Kentucky, also in Tennessee, uh, maybe a little bit in Virginia. This is a very labor-intensive uh, type of crop production. This stuff is stalk-cut, and the entire above-ground plant parts are carried to an air-cured structure uh, where these things are, are cured in ambient temperature for a period of about 68 weeks. Now, in terms of acreage, the most important tobacco in the United States is a tobacco type called flu-cured tobacco. Uh, this is much more mechanized. This type of tobacco is harvested by stalk position from the bottom of the plant uh, to the top over time. Uh, this is mechanized. These harvested leaves are transported to something called a flu curing barn, where the leaves are exposed to a precise regimen of temperature and humidity control. And these leaves are, are cured in a period of about seven days. So in terms of acreage, tobacco is not the post most important crop in North Carolina. Usually that's cotton or soybeans, depending upon the year. But in terms of economic impact, uh, tobacco is the most important crop in the state of North Carolina. For example, in 2012, tobacco accounted for 6.4% of on-farm cash receipts. So consequently, we have some tobacco research activities at NC State University, and my responsibility is in the area of tobacco breeding and uh, genetics. And uh, one of the overriding things that we try to do is to affect grower productivity. And obviously, genetics can do that by influencing yield. Genetics can be used to influence the uh, value of the cured leaf. And in certain circumstances, genetics can reduce, be used to reduce the cost of production. For example, if you could reduce the need for certain chemical inputs, uh, that reduces the uh, cost of production. Now, over time, Obviously, the tobacco, there are a number of things in tobacco products, obviously, which cause unfavorable health effects. These are well known. And over time, the tobacco industry has had interest in trying to reduce or eliminate uh, some of these things using technologies. Obviously, if you wanted to reduce exposure to tobacco toxicants, human people in the world, the easiest way to do that is through a decision. 
right, not to use tobacco products. But many people continue to make the decision to do that. Um, and so a number of organizations around the world are interested in regulating some harmful constituents of tobacco products. In 2009, the Federal Drug Administration in the United States was given authority to regulate tobacco products around the world over time uh, in association with the World Health Organization. Regulations will be set up in different countries. There will be differences in, in how these countries adopt these regulations. Uh, but these regulations will likely set standards for acceptable levels of certain harmful constituents of tobacco products. The World Health Organization has already published a list of a number of things which they suggest to be regulated for lowering or elimination. And this shows that list. So at the top of that list, there's eight things on that list. At the top of that list are things called NNN and NNK. These are things called tobacco-specific nitrosamines. They're nitrosamines which are specific to tobacco. And many of you know what nitrosamines are. Nitrosamines are nitrosated amines. So you add the NO group to the N and you have a nitrosamine. And in products, food products, cosmetics, beer and wine, cured meats, you have nitrosamines. And some of these nitrosamines are harmful to health. And some of these nitrosamines are very carcinogenic. Some of the most carcinogenic things in tobacco are the tobacco-specific nitrosamines. In smokeless tobacco products, by far, the, uh, the most harmful constituents are the tobacco-specific nitrosamines, NNK and NNN. So I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, what, before I get into some other things, our efforts to reduce levels of these tobacco-specific nitrosamines. So these tobacco-specific nitrosamines are nitrosation products of the major occurring alkaloids in tobacco. So NNK is derived from nicotine through a nitrosation reaction through some intermediate, which we don't entirely understand the mechanism. NNN is derived from nitrosation of nornicotine directly. And NAB and NAT are derived from these alkaloids right here. These Two TSNAs right here are not considered in the literature to have a lot of biological activity, so there's not a lot of huge concern on trying to reduce or eliminate those things. But NNK and NNN are big-time carcinogens. These are what's called Group 1A carcinogens, according to the International Agency for Research on, on Cancer. So if we wanted to reduce these things, since these are nitrosation products, one way to do that might be through reducing uh, exposure to the nitrosation, nitrosating agents, right? So in flu-cured situation, those nitrosating agents are provided by uh, their byproducts of the combustion fuel used to uh, heat the barn. But through engineering of the barn, you can reduce exposure to leaves of combustion gases, to, to combustion gases. In an air-cured situation, these nitrosating agents are believed to be due to microbially mediated reduction of nitrite to form nitrite, which then interacts uh, with the alkaloid to form a TSNA. So obviously one way to reduce levels of TSNAs is to reduce the availability of nitrosating agents in the plant and that at curing and during senescence of the plant. That might be affected by agronomics, and it can, and you might also use genetics to reduce the levels of nitrate available during curing. And we're working on that as well, but what I'm going to talk about today is a second way to reduce TSNAs, and that's by reducing the precursor uh, molecule uh, to the TSNA. In this case, I want to talk about reducing levels of NNN by virtue of reducing uh, nornicotine. So what do we know about the origin of nornicotine? 
Noronicotine is derived from nicotine by demethylation. Um, and so this is a process called nicotine conversion. So one would think that if we could reduce noronicotine in the tobacco plant, we might be able to have a good impact on reducing levels of this carcinogenic toxicant uh, N and N. This demethylation process, this removal of this methyl group, is almost entirely, entirely mediated by a nicotine demethylase enzyme system, which is encoded for by nicotine demethylase genes. This nicotine conversion process is an untrable, unstable trait in the tobacco genome. Typically, in plants with a low genetic predisposition to convert nicotine to noronicotine, this nicotine conversion occurs at a rate of about 5%. But the trait is unstable, and you can have plants where greater than 90% of nicotine is converted to noronicotine. This just shows some of that trait instability, some differences in different uh, varieties of different market types. This is a flu-cured tobacco type. You can see fairly stable, but you do have these uh, off types. But in burley tobacco, you have a greater degree of instability, high degree of instability in that type of tobacco. So like I said, this process is, is uh, facilitated by nicotine demethylase enzymes encoded for by genes. And so there was emphasis and interest in trying to isolate these genes for the purpose of reducing levels of this carcinogen, NNN. So my colleague, Dr. Ralph Dewey at NC State University, is a very uh, excellent um, uh, molecular biologist. And uh, he spearheaded this effort. And he also did this in competition with some people working in a private company. But through a differential expression approach using a microarray, he was able to isolate the first gene, CYP82E4, which is a cytochrome P450 gene, which uh, uh, causes this demethylation. Based on knowledge of the first gene sequence, we were able to isolate two additional genes, CYP82E5 and CYP82E10. They're highly related genes with a high degree of sequence similarity. They do the same thing, but act at different places and at different times and at different levels in the tobacco plant. So we have these three genes. That provides opportunity to use a biotechnological tool to affect product quality uh, in a crop plant. So what was done is use the sequence information to develop an RNA interference construct. This was done at the University of Kentucky, actually the production of this construct. So the RNA interference construct was designed to downregulate the entire gene family. So we grew these plants in a number of different locations several years ago to see what effect this transgenic method could have on reducing a strong toxicant in cured tobacco leaves. And so this is in a genetic background that has a low genetic predisposition to convert nicotine to noronicotine. And this is the effect. The yellow bars are the mean of some non-transgenic control seed lots. The green bars are the mean for some transgenic RNA interference lines. And you can see for percent noronicotine, the biotechnological trait uh, reduced percent noronicotine by about five-fold. Nicotine conversion by about five-fold, uh, about a six-fold reduction in levels of NNN, which is the desired uh, goal. The effects are much more dramatic in a genetic background with a high predisposition to converting nicotine to noronicotine. In this case here, greater than a 25-fold reduction in percent noronicotine, uh, very large reduction in nicotine conversion, more than a 10-fold reduction in levels of NNN, and about a 10-fold reduction in total TSNAs. This just shows the increase in trait stability provided by the RNA interference mechanism. Here's three non-transgenic seedlots showing the instability of the trait. 
here you have a high level of stability for an ultra-low level of nicotine conversion. Now, so one of the neat things about tobacco is that it's easily transformed. Um, tobacco, despite the fact that it was the first plant to be ever genetically engineered, we generally are not allowed or to commercialize genetically engineered uh, crop uh, uh, tobacco varieties because the industry is reluctant to use genetically engineered uh, tobacco varieties. That's an odd thing, um, but that's the way it is. You know, I, I've grown a lot of transgenic field tests at NC State University, and one of the main ways that you destroy a transgenic field test of tobacco at NC State University, according to APHIS regulations, is by burning it. Okay, so it's ironic since one of the main ways of consuming uh, many tobacco products is by burning. And it's just my opinion that, at least in the United States, I doubt that uh, uh, people who use tobacco products are concerned about the possibility that it might be uh, contaminated with GMO uh, tobacco. But, but nevertheless, um, it, it, it is what it is. So, nice demonstration of a biotechnological tool to affect product quality in crop plants in general but it's not acceptable. So we have since pursued a mutation-based approach, which might be considered a conventional approach, to see if we could get to the same level of suppression of nicotine conversion as is achieved using the RNA interference method. So the goal was to introduce deleterious mutations uh, into each of these three genes. The way that this was done was to treat tobacco seed with ethane methyl sulfonate, or EMS, which causes primarily single base pair mutations across the entire tobacco genome. We then used high-throughput high, high throughput sequencing to identify cases in which deleterious mutations were introduced into each of those three genes. At this, we were way more successful than I thought we were going to be. Uh, we only looked at 672 plants to identify a premature stop codon in CYP82E4, only looked at 768 plants to identify a truncation mutation in CYP82E5, and even though we looked at I think over 2,000 plants, we never did identify a premature stock codon in that gene, but we did identify a number of other mutations, uh, some of which were predicted to be deleterious, and one of these was verified to be a knockout mutation using a yeast assay. So bottom line here is we had knockout mutations in all three of these genes. So we then used uh, conventional breeding to develop lines with different combinations of these mutations, and the bottom line is that it takes all three mutations in homozygous condition to get the same level of suppression of nicotine conversion as is achieved using the uh, RNA interference uh, system. Okay? Now, from a plant breeding point of view, this is kind of interesting because the RNA interference system, that's controlled by one gene, one segregating gene. So, but we can't use that, so we have to go to the mutation thing, which is controlled by three independently segregating mutations. From a numbers point of view, uh, that uh, is unfavorable because in an F2 with the transgene, one in four plants is a homozygous individual. Uh, in an F2, one in 64 plants is homozygous for all three mutations. And I'm going to say a little bit more of that as we move down the road. The more of these things you accumulate, the more unfavorable this becomes from a numbers point of view. So we started off with some EMS mutated germplasm. We mutated an elite line. With EMS, you can convert an elite line into the exotic germplasm in 12 hours. It takes 12 hours to 24 hours, depending on how long you treat the seed, and you have a complete disaster on your hands. 
And so we started off with some terrible uh, genetic material, um, but the goal was to use bat crossing to move these mutations into some elite material. And this is some data from this year. Uh, oop. This is uh, some, some means, averages over uh, three nearly isogenic pairs. And you know, we started off with some really terrible germplasm. Uh, this is called SRC, Stable Reduced Converter Technology. Um, we've got the yield pretty close. It's probably still a little bit inferior for some lines. No penalty on cured leaf quality, but we have the desired trait in terms of reduced more nicotine and reduced nicotine conversion. Now, it is expected that these will be grown commercially in 2016, uh, maybe 2015. Um, it's been fun to be involved with this because I was involved from the gene discovery all the way to the commercialization of varieties. But, and you know, the timeline that we used, I, I think, would be comparable to what would be done in a private company, a Monsanto or a Pioneer. But I'll tell you, graduate students in here, one thing that you need to consider when you commercialize something like this is the time it takes to deal with this from a legal point of view, from a patent point of view, and a license point of view. Um, the, the science of plant breeding and inbred line development is one thing, but I'll tell you right now that legal aspects are an important component of plant breeding when you guys move into the private sector. Um, and you'd be surprised at how long this legal stuff can take. Sitting in a university chair, I would think that this would take a month, but it can take years uh, to deal with the patent uh, situation and license situations with this type of technology. But it's fun to be involved with at a university. A lot of people at universities uh, public plant breeders are not exposed uh, to uh, commercializing a trait like this. So it's been interesting for me. A lot of my colleagues at NC State really have never been uh, involved with this kind of a process. One other thing I'll talk about before we get into some interesting breeding methods uh, is also related to FDA regulation. So in 2009, like I said, the FDA was given the authority to regulate tobacco products. And one of the things that they were supposed to look at is whether or not there are nicotine levels in tobacco products which might be below the threshold uh, of, for, for addictability. And so that's a controversial thing. Um, some people advocate lower nicotine levels. Some people advocate higher levels. You can make a legitimate argument that the human health uh, would, or for, for users of tobacco products would be benefited by higher alkaloid levels. So that's controversial. But we might be interested in having some variability uh, to affect future variety development as it relates to alkaloid composition. So I've already said what the major occurring alkaloids are in tobacco. Most importantly is the one nicotine, um, some other ones there which are generally of lower importance. We at NC State, we do have a United States Nicotiana germplasm collection. And there's wide phenotypic variability uh, within this collection for alkaloid composition, ranging from almost zero to over 6%. And there are some major genes which ultimately affect alkaloid uh, accumulation levels. Um, but most of this is, is probably very complex in nature. So might we be able to have some gene-specific information that might allow us to modulate, modulate alkaloid composition in tobacco varieties? In the last 15 years, a lot has been learned about the biochemistry of alkaloid synthesis in tobacco um, and the molecular biology of some of these genes. A large number of genes have been isolated from uh, Nicotiana, which play roles in alkaloid synthesis. These things are highlighted in red and circled in gray. So given this gene information, you might be able to use this to increase the expression of some of these things, decrease the expression of some of these things to see what effect uh, that would have on alkaloid levels. 
Now, some of these things, are, however, are tied to some primary metabolism. For example, QPT is tied to this pyridine nucleotide cycle. That's an important thing in plants in general. So if you mess with the expression of that, you might, mess, you might think you might express mess with the uh, development of the plant. And indeed, you do. If you mess with this, you have a pretty good chance of deleteriously affecting plant development and yield. So from a strategic point of view, if we wanted to have gene-specific information that we might use to alter alkaloid levels, it might be most desirable to operate most downstream in the nicotine biosynthetic pathway. So there are two gene families that operate pretty close to the end of, this, of the biosynthesis of nicotine. One is the A622 family, and the other is the BBL gene family. BBL stands for berberine bridge-like uh, enzyme. And so I'm going to talk about the BBL uh, gene family. That gene family, I believe, consists of five members in the Nicotiana uh, tobacco genome. Three of those members are closely related in sequence. Two of them are more distantly related. And these things are transcribed at different levels. So might we be able to use RNA interference again to see what effect silencing this BBL gene family would have on reducing nicotine levels in the tobacco plant? So I want to talk about how we produce transgenic plants at NC State University. Um, we can take advantage of some features of Nicotian tobacco that allow us, in my opinion, to more better evaluate the transgenic outcomes. We do not transform diploid leaf tissue at NC State. We transform haploid tissue. And we subsequently produce transgenic double haploid lines. And there's a great advantage to that because you know what you have in the end. So you know that your derived double haploid line is homozygous at all transgene insertions. There's no funny segregation. There's no question about what transgene is doing what. Sometimes one insertion is not active and one is. And sorting all that out becomes a big mess. So what we do is we produce, first of all, haploid plants. And we do that by crossing our tobacco variety with a species called Nicotiana africana. This is primarily a lethal cross. And you get plants or seedlings of which 95% of them die at the seedling stage. Plants that survive are a mixture of maternal haploids, believed to be produced through parthenogenesis, and certain aneuploid interspecific hybrids. And what we've done here is to transform our Nicotiana africana with a GFP transgene. And that allows us to differentiate at an early stage the maternal haploids from the aneuploid interspecific hybrids. We transform the haploid tissue, use a chromosome doubling process to obtain transgenic double haploid lines, which we know are homozygous for all transgene insertions. So when you do this RNA interference, many of you may have done this type of thing in this room. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. So we have maybe, I don't know, 10 or so transgenic double haploid lines uh, designed to downregulate that uh, BBL gene family. This is our non-transgenic control. K326 has about 2.45% nicotine. Here's a group of lines where the RNA interference does not work. It's pretty much about the same. Um, when it does work, we can reduce nicotine to about 0.68%. And there's some variation within that group, but not a whole lot. And I'm not sure how heritable that variation is. So might it be nice to have some gene-specific variability, which might allow us to produce a range of alkaloid phenotypes in tobacco. So we went into our mutation population, identified deleterious mutations in three of those BBL genes, produced different combinations of those mutations uh, to produce homozygous lines. And the bottom line here is we have gene-specific variability now that can be used to produce oh, 
a wide variation uh, for percent total alkaloids. Some of those genes have a bigger effect uh, than others. So here's another three mutations. Add that on top of the previously, previous three described mutations. Now you've got six mutations in an F2, one in 4,096 is the most desirable genotype. So it gets to be, a, uh, from a numbers point of view, uh, undesirable. Now, so I've mentioned here some transgenic traits and some mutation-based traits that we might want to move into varieties very quickly. And in fact, the nicotine dimethylase stuff, we had a major goal of moving those traits into tobacco varieties very quickly. So we have our own NC State trait integration uh, division. And I'm the president. So um, the, the, the breeding process that was used to do this uh, was back crossing. Now, back crossing is usually not a very exciting breeding method. And, and it's not very exciting. But nevertheless, it is important to plant breeding. Um, it is often the case that the disease resistance genes are transferred using back crossing. So we're taking an already elite line and improving it for one or more traits. Um, transgenes are the focus of back crossing, primarily the Monsantos and the Pioneers and the Syngentas move transgenes into elite lines by back crossing. And in our tobacco breeding program, we commercialize F1 hybrids. They're male sterile. So when we develop a new hybrid combination, I need to make the female parent male sterile. And, male, and that's done through cytoplasmic male sterility, which is achieved through back crossing. So this can take a long time. And um, the amount of time it takes is dependent upon a number of different features. One is the number of back crosses that is used. You know, typically the number of back crosses that is used in back crossing is four to seven, and then, you know it may depend depending on uh, your starting materials and what the ultimate outcome uh, that you desire. And it's also dependent upon generation time, uh, so the time it takes uh, to go from seed to seed. So, for example, under the assumption of five back crosses and 160 days to go from seed to seed in tobacco, followed by several generations of self-pollination, this would take a little over three years to do, three years to convert a uh, trait conversion uh, in tobacco. So might we be able to reduce generation time to make some of these plant breeding uh, methods go a little more quickly? Generally, Nocotiana tobaccum is considered to be a photoperiod insensitive plant. And it can take 170 to 120 to 170 days to go from seed to seed, depending on the variety and the market type. But we do have photoperiod sensitive uh, tobaccos, uh, which are short day plants. Uh, photoperiod sensitive sensitivity was discovered in Nicotiana tobacco around 1918-1919, uh, supposedly where the uh, Pentagon uh, now stands outside of Washington D.C. At least that's what I'm told. A number of people over time in plants have tried to expose plants, including tobacco, to different combinations of temperature and light to see if this could be used to trigger early flowering. And this is kind of an erratic thing. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and it certainly does not stimulate ultra-early flowering uh, in tobacco. So from a practical point of view in our program, I find th this, this method to really not be that valuable. But over the last 10 years, a lot has been learned about the molecular biology and physiology of flowering in plants in general, primarily from work in Arapidopsis, rice, and tomato. And a number of different interesting genes have been isolated. Many of you in this room may be experts at this. But one of those genes is FT, which is a now famous gene which encodes for a mobile signal, which moves from the bottom part of the plant to the top part of the plant to stimulate the transition from vegetative to reproductive development. 
might we be able to use uh, this gene from a rapidopsis uh, uh, to uh, dramatically reduce the time it takes to complete certain breeding methodologies? So this is a variety called Tennessee 90 grown in the greenhouse. It took, in this case, 175 days to go from seed to seed. If we transform this with the FT transgene under the control of the 35S promoter, so we have FT from Arapidopsis being turned on at high levels early on in development, we can uh, make these tobacco plants flower in about 39 days. If you tack on another 39, uh, 30 days to uh, get a mature seed capsule, you're looking at 69 days to go from seed to seed, which is a pretty good time in comparison uh, to that. And you could reduce this even further if you harvest an immature seed capsule. So might we be able to use this to modify our back cost breeding uh, scenario? And the way that this would work is in each back cost generation, you would select for your trait or traits of interest, but also for the FT transgene. And near the end of the back cross breeding method, you would select for your trait or traits of interest, but select against the FT transgene to end up with a non-transgenic outcome uh, which is a, your elite line improved for one or more traits, which were the focus of the, uh, the back cross breeding program. So the time savings on this under the assumption of 160 days to go from seed to seed and five back crosses followed by several generations of self-pollination, uh, 546 days. So depending on when you start, you might be able to commercialize a variety two years ahead of time. And you can make that even go faster if you operate down here. Uh, you can inoculate these plants with a viral vector uh, expressing FT. Obviously the advantage would be greater as the number of back crosses you use increases and the advantage would be greater the greater your generation time is. For example, the previous speaker spoke about trees. Uh, many tree breeders are now uh, using this uh, type of method to speed up things in those species. One thing that's advantageous from a tobacco breeding point of view is we can move a lot of plant breeding into our building. And we've done a lot of plant breeding actually now in the building instead of the greenhouse or the lab. These plants flower normally. Uh, you can make a real nice self-pollination or a cross on those plants. And in comparison, you guys who work in soybeans who are lucky to maybe get one seed from a cross, uh, we can get 3,000 seed uh, from one of these crosses. So that's a nice aspect of, of Nicotiana. Now we've also evaluated the potential of modifying inbreeding using this FT-based uh, uh, system. So I had a master student conduct part of his uh, thesis on this subject right here. So can we reduce the time it takes to develop inbred lines, and can we also, along the way, uh, select for a polygenic trait? So in this case, uh, we kind of modeled this after modified single seed descent, so we were looking at uh, self-pollinated progenies after the F2. Uh, we started with uh, K346, which has a high level of resistance to a polygenic disease uh, called black shank, which is caused by Phytophthora. So donor of a high level of polygenic resistance, several lines which uh, on the burly other side of the pedigree, which had a uh, low or intermediate level of resistance to this particular disease. So we, the goal was to use this FT system to uh, more rapidly move through these inbreeding generations, and we conducted selection for resistance in the F2, F3, and F4 stage. Just to say a little bit about this disease, this is a polygenic uh, type of disease resistance. This is a soil-borne uh, disease organism which infects the roots and stalks of the plant to end up killing the plant. And one of the types of resistance is uh, polygenic, and we know it's polygenic because in a series of available varieties you see wide variation. And also, we've verified this to be the case using some uh, QTL uh, studies as well. 
And one thing I'll say about this is in a tobacco breeding program, you almost have to do this in the field, which allows you one time per year. Okay? This really does not work in, in a greenhouse type of situation. So what we did in the F2, F3, and F4 generations was to inoculate FT plants um, with the black shank pathogen, the phytophthora organism, uh, done using an oat grain inoculation technique. After about four or five days, the disease takes off. Uh, hopefully susceptible plants are dying, and hopefully we're collecting seeds uh, which have a high level of polygenic resistance. In the end of the process, uh, we segregate away the FT transgene, verify there are no transgene components just using simple PCR, and produce uh, F6 seed in the greenhouse. And all that was done in one year uh, in, in growth rooms at NC State and also in the greenhouse. Now, before I move on, I want to say one thing that's a negative about this inbreeding, and that's the possibility that you can fix the FT transgene during the inbreeding process. So you get it homozygous, so that eliminates the possibility that you could segregate it away. So every time you advance a self-progeny, you need to make sure that the self-progeny is still segregating for FT. What we really need to make this work well is to link the FT transgene with some other transgene that has a partially dominant effect. Uh, maybe something that affects flower color or something like that, but I have yet to identify what such a genetic mechanism might be. So if anybody has any suggestions on that, uh, I'd be interested to hear it. So hopefully, through all this inbreeding, rapid inbreeding, coupled with selection for polygenic disease resistance, we end up with an increased fraction of lines with a high level of resistance to disease. And in fact, that's what we see here. These are our selected materials. This is a random set of lines which were unselected for, for disease resistance. So we published that paper. I think that's in crop science, maybe in the most recent issue. Now, this is something I want to talk about that I won't publish. Um, this is just straightforward plant breeding. Um, so it's not really publishable, but it's very useful from a cultivar development point of view. So what I wanted to do was to try to improve the polygenic black shank resistance in this background right here, Tennessee 90 LC. And so I took some of the materials from the previous uh, slides, back crossed them two more times to Tennessee 90, and within each back cross generation, we also conducted several generations of self-progeny evaluation, where we selected within and among families for polygenic uh, black shank resistance. So we carried this out. And in the end, uh, segregate away the FT transgene. So there are nine generations of selection here. And the outcome was great, at least the data we have so far. All these lines are, are more resistant than the recurrent parent. Most of these lines are more resistant than some of these uh, uh, commercial varieties reported to have a high level of disease resistance. So I said that for this soil-borne disease resistance, you almost have to do this in the field. And that gives you one generation per year. So that's a lot of years there, and the reality is that using this FT uh, modified uh, breeding program, we were able to carry this out in less than two years. So when I describe this to people, um, uh, you know, eugratistine is another thing you need to be concerned about is regulations. How, do you, how are plant varieties regulated in the United States and around the world? So are the outcomes of this style of plant breeding considered transgenic? I don't think they should be considered transgenic because they don't con contain transgene elements. We can ver by, verify that to be the case. Um, but are they regulatable in the 
case of regulations, it doesn't matter what the opinion of Ramsey Lewis is. It matters what the opinion of regulatory authorities is. So we are one of the first people to inquire to APHIS about whether these varietal outcomes from this type of scenario would be regulatable in the United States, these null segregants. Um, Sally McKennedy has a similar uh, type of inquiry to APHIS, which was, would be somewhere up, up, up on that website. So after about a year, APHIS replied. It takes a long time for APHIS to reply, and it took some plotting for them to reply, but eventually they reply. They posted my letter on the internet. I didn't, I didn't think that would, would occur, but it's on there, and you can look at it. So in terms of regulating things in the United States, th those rules, those regulations are written in, in kind of a way which you might not expect. In the United States, APHIS does not regulate transgenic or genetically engineered plants in general. They regulate transgenic plants which are plant pests or which could become plant pests because they contain genetic elements from plant pests. So in our case, our varietal outcomes do not contain elements from plant pests because we've segregated away all the transgenic material. And tobacco is not a plant pest. So they said that these null segregants would be considered non-regulatable. And I considered, I thought that would be the case, but we needed to have them to say that. And now they say that uh, on the internet. Internationally, the European Union is looking at these type of scenarios right now. Uh, they have a series of, I think they call alternative breeding techniques. So they, they need to have a stance um, because these things are coming along. And I didn't look before I came here. I'm not sure they've made a decision on that. Um, but several scientific reports uh, issued in conjunction with those uh, evaluations suggest that these style of things should not be regulated in the EU. But we'll see where that lands. So the last thing I want to talk about relates to regulation of transgenic plants in the United States. So if they're only going to regulate certain products of genetic engineering, might that open up opportunities to do to deploy some unique things which might not otherwise be possible without large regulatory burden? And this example right here, uh, many of you know of it. This is a well-publicized thing. Uh, Scott's Turfgrass Company inquired about APHIS's position on some herbicide-resistant turf grass. So they engineered turf grass, um, in this case Kentucky bluegrass, but there's also inquiries on some other turf grasses, to be glyphosate resistant using only elements from plants. So the gene elements came from rice, maize, and arapidopsis. So, and they used certain transformation methodology to avoid uh, the use of plant pest sequences. So in this case, this herbicide-resistant turf grass does not contain elements from plant pests. And so they said that this would not be regulated in the United States. So that opens up some opportunities, like I said, to potentially do some things that might not otherwise be possible without regulatory burden. And the example I want to use relates to tobacco mosaic virus in tobacco. So tobacco mosaic virus, or TMB, is one of the most highly studied plant pathogens in plants. This virus infects tobacco, it stunts the plant, and it's very easily mechanically transmitted from plant to plant. So it's an economically important uh, pathogen worldwide. Very little useful resistance to this disease within the species, but over time, some people were able to transfer resistance to tobacco from another species, and this resistance is uh, conferred by a gene called N, which provides resistance by hypersensitive response. This is a dominant gene. This type of resistance is 
one of the most easy type of resistance is to select for probably in plant breeding. You just select for a hypersensitive response after inoculation. It's very easy to develop TMV resistant varieties. It's very difficult to develop a commercially acceptable variety possessing TMV resistance. And the reason why that is is when the TMV resistance gene is in homozygous condition, it imparts a 7 to 10% reduction in yields. You can lessen this effect by deploying this dominant disease resistance gene in F1 hybrids, but still the yield penalty is significant. So the question is, is that type of resistance due to effects of the disease resistance gene itself, or is that due to linkage drag effects uh, caused by unfavorable genes linked to the end gene from the wild donor relative? So this tells a nice story, this N-mediated resistance, because this, go, this represents the full scale of alien gene transfer in plants. One of the first examples of alien gene integration in plants was actually this TMB resistance in the 1930s. Uh, these guys made a cross between tobacco and Nicotiana glutinosa right here. They got an F1 hybrid. The F1 hybrid spontaneously chromosome doubled. That was used as a basis to back cross back to Nicotiana tobaccum. And eventually they were able to establish a chromosome substitution line where the end gene carrying chromosomes substituted a chromosome from the Nicotiana tobacco genome. And after more work, they were eventually able to obtain recombination with a substituted alien chromosome and a chromosome of a tobacco genome. So they ended up with a segmental substitution event. And in the 1990s, when people started to isolate the first disease resistance genes, the end gene was the first plant virus resistant gene to ever be isolated. So that tells a nice story. We've come full circle in, in transferring disease resistance genes or the potential to transfer disease resistance genes from wild relatives to plants. Now, in conventional gene integration, sometimes it can take 20 years and a lot of luck to get to a point like this. Sometimes you may never get to a point like that. But from a utility point of view, it might be more useful to only integress the gene itself without any linked foreign sequences. So the cloning of that gene that end gene allows one to test, first of all, for the relative importance of pleiotropy and versus linkage drag effects. And it also provides an example of how we might be able to achieve things using a cisgenic type of approach, something that otherwise might be difficult to achieve. Now, I'm going to use an example here. In this case, our outcomes, our transgenic plants, would be considered regulatable because in this case we used a selectable marker with uh, plant pathogen sequences, agrobacterium transformation was used, but it, it makes a point on how we might be able to alleviate linkage drag effects. So here we had the clone end gene under the control of its own regulatory sequences, its own promoter uh, linked to uh, the selectable marker gene, uh, transform haploid tissue, produce uh, transgenic double haploid lines. We selected double haploid lines which had single insertions of the end transgene, which I designate here by N asterisk. So we evaluated these in the field for yield performance. So here's K326, which is a non-transformed control. Here's K326, into which the end gene had been backcrossed 12 times using conventional backcrossing. Very difficult to alleviate these linkage drag effects, no matter how many backcrosses you use. And here's the performance of our first generation transgenic lines with TMB resistance. And you can see that these transgenic lines are significantly better than this. But still, they're a little bit lower yielding than the original K326. So maybe the end gene does have pleiotropic effects on yield. Maybe the marker transgene has some unfavorable effects on yield. 
But I think one thing that a lot of people do not pay attention to when they evaluate first-generation transgenic plants in the field and look at correlations between the trade of interest and yield is the potential that tissue culture effects might be influencing your trade. Might soma clonal variation be the reason for the different performance between this and this? So soma clonal variation, many of you know. Um, I know some of you have worked on this in the past. Um, when you expose things to tissue culture, genetic changes can occur across the entire genome. Most often, these changes are probably deleterious. Sometimes you can have changes which might impart a favorable effect. But all, over, on average, I think uh, you would consider these effects to be unfavorable. And in the construction of our double haploid lines, we actually expose these plants to two generations of tissue culture. One, the transformation process per se, and we use a tissue culture process to double the chromosome number of these transgenic plants. So to determine the relative importance of this uh, unfavorable variation that might have been influenced by the tissue culture process, we back-crossed our originally transformed lines back to K326 two times, self-pollinate to restore trait stability. And so on average, hopefully, we would be expected to get rid of about 87, 88% of the deleterious genetic changes that might have been imparted by the tissue culture process. So we end up with this bar right here. Um, so after back-crossing, the performance of our lines improves. So that suggests that somoclonal variation probably was causing some unfavorable changes, but still less than K326. So I, I think um, if I did additional back crossing, we could probably get this closer to K326. Um, but it is possible that maybe the disease resistance gene itself has some uh, negative effects on yield, or maybe it's the marker gene, or maybe some other things as well. But it does demonstrate the value of using transgenics to transfer a disease resistance trait to a variety as compared to using conventional back crossing. This is way more uh, higher yielding uh, than that. So there are opportunities, if you do this in the right way, to transfer genes from plants into tobacco and other plants using only plant sequences, to do some things which might not otherwise be possible because of regulatory burden, if in the United States we're going to have that type of regulatory stance. As an example of that, tomato spotted wilt virus is a terrible uh, disease in the United States. Uh, very little resistance within the Nicotiana tobacco species. Nicotiana alata has resistance. As an example of someone who got really lucky, uh, a guy from Poland was able to transfer resistance from this species called Nicotiana alata to this variety right here. But as a really good demonstration of linkage drag effects, you get this. Uh, these plants are resistant to the virus, but they are really distorted in terms of growth, and that's never going to fly commercially. And so in tomato, many of you know there's probably a gene isolated called SW5. Uh, we'd like to move SW5 uh, into tobacco, and if you do it in the right way, you could avoid the use of uh, plant pest sequences. So in conclusion, uh, you know, I mentioned that I, I kind of thought tobacco might be an interesting thing to work in because I thought that we could do some interesting things. Tobacco is a very plastic species, has a lot of flexibility. And we try to take advantage of all those things to do some interesting things uh, in plant breeding. That's not only interesting intellectually, but also that might be interesting uh, to affect uh, tobacco growing. So I mentioned, oops. so I mentioned some alternative breeding approaches which can increase efficiency maybe and enhance opportunities. And it was fun. It has been fun to be involved with this 10-year project to commercialize a trait all the way from gene discovery 
all the way to commercialization in the field. There's a lot of things involved with that. You guys, when you get jobs in the private sector, you will find out there's more to developing varieties like that than just the science. The legal and the regulatory and the license aspects of that are, are also important. So um, also I'll, I'll tell the students, you know, a lot of your success uh, when you get out into the job world is dependent uh, upon the people that you have around you. And I've been lucky to have good people working in our program ever since I started my job. I've been very fortunate to do that, to have that. And um, one thing that also affects the how you enjoy your job is having good people to collaborate with. And I've been fortunate to have a guy named Dr. Ralph Dewey, who's a very good molecular biologist at NC State University. Um, and you'll find out that through collaboration, uh, you can do some things together that you would not otherwise be able to uh, do yourselves. So I believe that's all I have. And uh, thank you very much for having me back to East Campus. Um, it's uh, been interesting and, and a pleasure to come back after 16 years. So I'll take any questions if anybody has. Thank you, Dr. Lewis. Uh, we have time for questions. Hi, I'm Rick Goodman. I'm in food science. And I work on the safety assessment of genetically modified crops it is an interesting point that you raise about cisgenics and should they be regulated? And you know, we can talk about regulations and not, you know, that's a legal definition, but you might have to consider that there could be some potential risks, even if you take a gene from one plant and put it back into itself. And so there should be some evaluation of that because you could have an enzyme that then creates a toxin in a different environment or something. So certainly, could you speak I mean, to that? Well, certainly you could do that. Um, obviously, you could probably make a uh, plant produce a poison, right? Um, someone could, uh, could do that. And your, your point is an interesting one. Um, you know, I don't work for a regulatory authority, but that uh, is a valid point. And like I say, I, the European Union is evaluating these things. And I think on the cisgenic thing, Based on what I read, I think they're going to fall down on the uh, on the side of regulation. Um, so, but that would be in contrast to what's going on in the United States. And maybe the United States will change. I don't know. There's been some high, you know, there's been some articles in Nature and Science about these things, and uh, you know, sometimes these things are written to say that scientists are are doing this to evade or circumvent regulations. Um, that might be one argument. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a legitimate point. There certainly are some dangerous things that could be done. Just, just because you're transferring a plant gene to another plant doesn't mean that you couldn't produce a dangerous outcome. Dave. Ramsey, very much enjoyed your talk. A quick question. You know, the EU is, has its own set of hurdles, but the Canada has quite a set of regulations on mutations. Have you had to work with any I don't know of those? about Canada's, uh, I've never looked into Canada's uh, stance on mutations, but the EU's stance on mutations, that, that's something that's clearly outlined. The EU says mutation breeding is not something that would be subjected to regulation. Well, I don't know, I don't know about Canada, Steve. I've never, I, looked, I've never looked into that. I would recommend you do because on the uh, immune tolerant wheats, if you create a new mutation, 
even though every mutation in the ALS gene is at the exact same site, mm -hmm. you have to go through the full feeding test, which I don't know what you do for tobacco. Right. But you have to go through the full regulation on any new trait as long as it affects something which is considered an integral part or you, you claim it, so like an immutolerant wheat. So I don't know how they would view a, a low you know, health risk tobacco. But they would be interesting. How do they distinguish between a naturally occurring mutation and an induced mutation? Uh, they basically do it by intent. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I'll, I'll look into that. That's Canada is not something that I uh, really thought about. Hi. Uh, how did you screen the individual EMS mutants? Sequencing. Just sequencing, and the reason why that is, you know, you could do the tilling thing as described, but there's patents on tilling. So a lot of times, when you do these types of things, you've got to consider patents, and you want to try to do this in the most clean way possible. And so that's the way we originally did what we did. Thanks. Any more questions? So I had a question about your um, yield drag, and is it possible that it's the insertion site, or did you yeah, do multiple insertions? I actually, it's been some time since I did those analyses. At the time, I think I did some analyses to think about whether or not that was the case. You know, most of a plant, the plant genome, such as tobacco, is interspersed sequence, and um, the likelihood of, of a gene integrating into uh, an expressed gene is probably not very high. Obviously, there's probably a good degree of gene redundancy in a species like tobacco. Um, I, you know, if you're only looking at one line, I think you might conclude that might be a possibility. But if you're looking at an average, uh, like I say, that's possible. But I don't think that's really what's going on here. If there are no more questions, let's thank Dr. Lewis once again.